0: listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. Good morning, brothers. Great to uh, be with you. And thank you, by by the way, for that wonderful worship. You know, I was sitting there just looking forward to that day when uh, we will be delivered from all self-consciousness. And we will be in the midst of myriads and myriads of angels, the saints of all the ages, and we'll be totally, purely, eternally Christ-conscious. Won't that be glorious? And in the meantime, we taste of that reality. And so thank you. And thank you, Robbie. Uh, I say this truly. My board would tell you this. There's not another pastor in the, the world that I love more than this man. And I'm so glad that God has crossed our paths in this last year or so. Uh, Brother George has been a friend for a long time. We're kind of prayer fanatics together and uh, God's using him. But all under the leadership of this man who loves Christ, has such a passion for the gospel, so real and genuine, and so it's always a privilege to stand here this morning. Our ministry is called Strategic Renewal. I think there's a slide up there if you ever want to connect with us. Uh, It's really a a national, international ministry. Uh, As Robbie said, eight years ago I left the senior pastor Pastor became a full time spiritual pyromaniac, and uh, uh, now we kind of connect with people in a lot of different ways. But we would love to have you stop by and visit the resources and pray for us as well. Now, some of you men have been introduced to a new time of day today, right? 7 a.m., some of you showed up. That's pretty cool. Uh, You owls, you're still trying to figure out, does God really exist this time of day? Uh, You roosters like me, uh, this is just kind of normal stuff, right? Uh, For over 20 years, I would disciple a group of young men, a different group each year. We would meet every Saturday morning at 6 a.m. And I told these guys, you know, leaders make habits out of the things most people don't like to do. Right? Starting with getting out of bed. So cock-a-doodle-doo to all of you. And uh, it was great to to be in the prayer room with some of you who are just uh, fully awake, uh, passionately seeking the Lord. Now, uh, not to be outdone, I've got five things I love about Canada. Okay? How about that? Uh, I have been in every province except Saskatchewan. Someone said I'm not missing much. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> one of these days I'll go there. I uh, ha- have literally spoken, uh, man, I don't know, probably 50 times in Canada over the years. have a lot of Canadian friends. Every year I've been in Calgary leading pastors prayer summits. We have board members in Calgary. And every time I'm in Canada, I, tr- I say this, I-, I feel like I was born in the wrong country. Uh, if I could talk my wife into moving north of the border, I would be here, right? But i, I- really, really do love it here. So I had five things uh, similar to last night, but uh, donut of the month. I love donut of the month, right? Uh, Tim Hortons, one time they did a key lime donut. I don't know if they'll ever come back with that. If you have any influence, tell them I really need a key lime donut, okay? Uh, Second one, and this probably would have been top on my list, poutine. Oh, baby. That is a heart attack in a bowl, isn't it? But it's so good. So good. Third one, Banff. I love Banff. Uh, Our board members who live in Calgary take us up there every time we go. Uh, They've had us in helicopters flying over the Rockies. It's just a glorious place, taste of heaven. Uh, The fourth one, more more serious, honestly, is the gracious, humble spirit of the Canadian people. Uh, uh, Sincerely. I mean, us south of the border, we're pompous, self-important, noisy, brash, you know. We think we're the center of the universe. Uh, You are special people up here, and I mean that sincerely. Uh, that was best displayed a year ago. I was here preaching last uh, first weekend of February, and it was the Super Bowl, and my favorite team, 30-plus years, was playing in the Super Bowl, the Seattle Seahawks. And in that last minute, when they lost the game, my Canadian friends came over and gave me love and compassion and mercy, and I'll never forget it. Uh, <laughs> and one of the most meaningful emotional moments of my life in a lot of ways. So. And then the fifth thing I love about Canada, especially the harvest Uh, family here in Canada is the extraordinarily high percentage of bald guys, (laughs) right? It must be the McDonald effect, right? So you know, I have a theory. Bald guys ought to start like a a new government-protected minority movement, right? We can't help the fact we're bald. But you look at these commercials. Are you tired of not being able to get the gals, you know? Do you wish you were as handsome as the guy across the cubicle? Join men's hair clubs. I'm going What do you mean, baby? I love my baldness, right? So fellowship of the foreheads, I want all the bald guys to stand. We're just… Stand up, all you bald guys right now. Come on. We're going to celebrate. Come on. Come on. I see you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. All right. We love you guys. Yeah. It's the first time you've accepted that. It's a breakthrough, all right? It's a breakthrough. We used to use head and shoulders. Now it's just mop and glow and hit the road. Makes it really easy. So. So we love you guys. Love you guys. (laughs) Open your Bibles this morning, if you will, to Colossians chapter 4. We'll be looking at that text in just a moment. Colossians chapter 4. And as you're turning there, we're going to look at verse 12. I want to ask you a question. Who do you know today who is under spiritual attack? (laughs) You're saying, how much time do you have, right? Who do you know today who's under spiritual attack? A friend at work, a brother in your small group, family member, one of your children, the man in the mirror. John Piper, who's always stealing my material. Uh, I need to write him. But John Piper said, until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. And today we are in the midst of an intense spiritual battle. It is war. And Satan's greatest delight is battle casualties. Ruined lives, lost young people, People trapped in addiction, crime, broken marriages, defeated Christians, men without purpose. The movie War Room, some of you saw that, was such a great reminder of the power of prayer in light of the battle where this older woman who who got a burden for a younger gal whose marriage was struggling, uh, began to intercede, as was her lifestyle, praying diligently, agonizing in prayer. And the breakthrough not only happened in their marriage, but they caught the prayer infection. And that young lady, as well as her husband, both became prayer warriors, understanding that the key to the spiritual battle is to call on a great God who does victories on behalf of His people for the glory of Christ. And so as we talk about not wasting our freedom, today our theme is pray hard, pray hard. I love the verse we opened up with earlier, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, where the Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom. But don't forget the next verse, here's how this freedom is experienced, but we all, with an unveiled face are beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image even as by the Spirit of the Lord that our freedom leads us to pray hard, to experience the glory of Christ, to intimately connect with our Savior. Well, I think that one of the greatest ways to understand that is the model of another man who knew how to do that, and his name was Epaphras. And in Colossians chapter four twelve, just very simply, Paul says this. He's sharing greetings from uh, where he is in a Roman prison to uh, to uh, the church in Colossae, and he says this: Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So today we're going to look at the model of a man who prayed hard. Later on we're going to look at the motivation of men who pray hard. But for now, let's just look at the model of this man's life, Epaphras. Let's think about what we know about his life and his prayers and his goal in all of his praying here. And so I want you to see what we know about his life. Paul simply begins by saying, Epaphras, who is one of you. Now Paul is concluding this powerful letter to the church at Colossae and he's sending greetings. And he mentions a bunch of different guys. Most of them are Jewish, Epaphras, a Gentile. And he sends greetings from Rome over there. And he mentions Tychicus and Ones- Onesimus. Uh, those are the number one and two baby names in Toronto right now. Very, very good names. Uh, but he mentions these guys who are probably going to take the letter back. And we kind of presume that Epaphras now stays with Paul. But Paphras was one who was well known by the Coloss- Colossian church because he is the one who actually started the church. Uh, we understand that probably while Paul was in Ephesus for three years, about hundred miles away, that's where Paphras uh, encountered him and probably believed the gospel and was discipled. He went back to what was presumably his hometown. And he began to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you have your Bible open, you see in verse 13 uh, that Epaphras was not only familiar to the church, but he had worked hard on their behalf. Just to help you understand that context, uh, go with me back to the very first part of Colossians. You see it on the screen. And I want you to see what Paul says here, Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. He says, "We, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day, catch this, the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from who? Epaphras, some of you don't know how to say it, you say, whatever it is, right? But Epaphras, he's the dude who brought it to you. Our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And so what we know about this man is that without theological degrees, without a New Testament, uh, without any seminary training or any special titles, he just became a minister of Christ, and a church has emerged not only in, in uh, Colossae, but also in Laodicea and Heropolis. You see those two cities alongside or near Colossae, and he was used much like a harvest Bible chapel, the plan of church, the plan of churches, and was an influential man for Christ. He later became, we learned from Leman, a prisoner as well for the gospel alongside Paul. But words matter. And I want you to see how Paul describes him now. A servant of Christ Jesus in verse 12. A servant of Christ Jesus. Now, we read that word servant in the New Testament, and there are two Greek words that are often translated servant. One is diakonos, which actually means servant. One is doulos, which actually means slave. The word here is slave a slave of Jesus Christ. John MacArthur in one of his books makes this note, he said, there's a crucial difference between servants and slaves. Noting that servants are hired and slaves are owned. Say that with me. Servants are hired and slaves are owned. MacArthur says, believers are not merely Christ hired servants, they are his slaves. Belonging to him as his possession, he is their owner, their master, worthy of their unquestioned allegiance and absolute obedience. His word is their final authority, his will their ultimate mandate. Now it wasn't easy to be called a slave back in these days in Greek uh, culture. Uh, It was obviously something that was usually viewed as very demeaning, but actually could also be a a title of honor depending on whose slave you were, right? And uh, it, it would be like saying, you know, I work for Donald Trump. But now, that's a controversial failure. I work for Donald Trump versus I own Joe's Donut Shop, right? So, so you may be your own master at Joe's Donut Shop, but working for Donald Trump, for some people, not all, believe me, but that would be in a, a title of honor. To say I am a slave of Jesus Christ would be the greatest honor for any follower of Jesus. MacArthur said Christ, whose power and authority were greater than that in any other master-slave relationship, Is also implicit that Christian, the Christian conviction, listen to this, that only such unconditional handing over of oneself can prevent being enslaved by more destructive power. Did you catch that? It's only in giving ourselves completely to our master that we have the power to avoid being enslaved by anything else. To be a Christian is to be a slave of Christ. One professor and author said it this way, you see it on the screen, one of the classic Christian paradoxes is that freedom leads to slavery and slavery leads to freedom. I want you to turn to the brothers around you and I want you to say, Jesus is Lord and you are his slave. Would you tell each other that? Just be reminded, Jesus is Lord and you are his slave. You see, brothers, freedom as we describe it leads to slavery, but slavery to the lordship of Jesus Christ leads to freedom. And you know, we emphasize titles in our culture, doctor, president, COO, director, pastor, the boss, the bomb, you know, whatever you want to be called. And we think our rights are attached to those titles. I want to tell you the greatest title we could ever claim is a servant, literally a slave of Jesus Christ. And in that we have the greatest privilege in the world, a Epaphras, a slave of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to see what we know about his prayers, what we know about his prayers. Paul goes on, he says, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. The word struggling may be translated in your Bible as striving. Uh, It could even be agonizing, and that's really the the purest translation because the Greek word is the word from which we get the word agonize. He is agonized. It it literally has roots in the idea of a a contest. It's the concept of contending with an adversary, fighting, straining, entering battle. Literally Epaphras is, is battling in his prayers. I remind, it reminds me as going into kind of a spiritual beast mode, right? That that would be natural for me to think of that with Marshawn Lynch. He just goes crazy in the battle of football. And it's us getting so absorbed in the reality of what this contest is all about that we agonize with everything we have and everything we are. One of my favorite missionaries in all of biblical history was a guy named David Brainerd. In fact, in 1742, he was kicked out of Yale University because he sparked a spiritual revival. (laughs) He only lived 29 years, died of tuberculosis. Reminded, I was sharing with George in the back room, I'm reminded of what the philosopher William James said. He said, the great use of one's life is to spend it on something that will outlast it because the value of life is not computed by its duration, but by its donation. And in 29 years, this man donated his life to the cause of Christ. Biographers describe him as a man of such absorption uh, of whole solistic zeal for the divine glory, the salvation of man, that it has been scarcely paralleled since the age of the Apostles. He was described as a man who would go and do his greatest work in prayer in the depths of the forests, alone, unable to speak the language of the Native Americans. He was called to reach these Native Americans in the United States. He would literally spend days in prayer. Uh, he knew he could not reach these savages. He did not understand their language. He, he wanted to speak, but he must find something beyond even his ability of speech to reach them. Therefore, he knew all he could do was cast himself entirely upon the grace and power of God, trusting the Holy Spirit to enable him to do what he could not do. It's told one time that once he preached through a drunken interpreter who was so intoxicated he could hardly stand up, and dozens came to Christ. (laughs) I'd say that's the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the fruit of agonizing prayer. My favorite story about Brainerd tells of one night when he rode all night long on his horse to try to reach a Native American group in northern Pennsylvania and he arrived early in the morning and he saw the smoke coming from their village and he knew that while talking to God, talking to men about God was a great thing, talking to God about men was the first thing. And Brainerd knelt in that clearing, began to agonize in prayer on their behalf. And some of the young warriors from that tribe spotted him and encircled him at a distance. And as soon as this white man finished praying, they were going to kill him. But they waited all morning, and he continued to pray agonizing in his spirit for the souls of these individuals. And he prayed early into the afternoon and then a particular moment they were filled with delight as a rattlesnake came out of its nest, encircled Brainerd, raised its head with a forked tongue as if to strike, and then inexplicably lowered its head, crawled away, and went back into the brush. These natives realized they had just seen a miracle. They actually declared Uh, The the spirits are with the pale face. They threw down their weapons and rushed to Brainerd and the story is told that he Rose from his knees to lead dozens of this tribe to Jesus Christ Epaphras agonizing in prayer Now what was his goal as he prayed? I want you to see what was his goal? It's very clear in the text. He is struggling in prayer on your behalf Colossians so that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. You remember those fe- those faces and names and people we thought of who were under spiritual attack? What are we praying for? We're praying that they will stand mature, that they will be fully assured in the will of God. Literally, it's the idea of being completely convinced And you know, uh, we have grandkids and for about a year, uh, one of our sons, his daughter and their three grandkids have been living with us. And I've just been reminded of the behavior of immature people, right? I I love these little kids, but they do stupid things. They say dumb things. They're fearful. They get in trouble. They don't know better. And again, there are so many people in our lives, including the man in the mirror, right, that need that maturity. We need to stand strong, fully assured of the will of God. And Epaphras knew the one thing I can do is agonize in prayer on their behalf. In Colossians chapter 1, listen to how Paul prayed this prayer. Very similarly, he said, we've not ceased to pray for you, Colossians 1, 9-11, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So if you read the entire book of Colossians, you realize that all that Paul is teaching them is now being infused with power with spiritual potency through the prayers of Epaphras. He's agonizing in prayer that what Paul had already written about, what Paul is praying about, is really being dispersed into their lives through the power of prayer. So this is a model of a man who prayed hard. A man who prayed hard. But why? Why would he do that? Uh, Why would I step out of my comfort zone? Why would I get over my self-consciousness? Why would I agonize in prayer? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's a great question. So let's answer that, all right? The motivation of a man who prays hard, and what would motivate us? Again, a reminder, Epaphras didn't have a spiritual gift. He didn't have the gift of prayer. There is no such thing as a gift of prayer, right? It's a calling. We've all got it. We just have to obey it. It wasn't about his theological degree. He hadn't read a book on prayer. I want to give you just some practical thoughts what I think motivates people to agonize in prayer. Number one, our love for the people entrusted to our care. Our love for the people entrusted to our care. I was just uh, reminded, a very real story here, very real story, honest and raw. So as I was preparing for this message this week, Midweek, uh, my wife and I had a bad morning. You ever had a bad morning with your wife? Raise your hand. Right? The rest of you were obviously preaching online, I think, next hour, something like that. Yeah, so uh, unless you're not married. Just a rough morning. Um, When I was in the senior pastorate, there were hard things, but now doing what I do, in many ways, it's harder. I know the devil hates what we do. Uh, The travel is hard. Uh, We've had to move. The transitions in our family. And... And, and my wife, we're opposites, you know, I'm extrovert, she's introvert, I, I'm independent, she she's, wants connection, uh, I love crowds, she loves one-on-one, you know, I love change, I eat change for breakfast, change just drives her crazy. And We've been through a lot of change, so it was one of those mornings, you know, one of those meltdown mornings. Anybody relate to that? Yeah, okay, I figured you would. And as she began to just pour out her heart in such honesty, talking about some pain she's processing, discouragement, some loneliness, uh, going on and on, you know, I, I want to give her a Bible verse, right? Well, honey, don't you know what the Bible says, right? Or, or did, haven't I told you before, da-da-da-da-da, you know, or, or don't you get it, you know? Why would you feel that way? Why don't you just, any, any, am I alone in this stuff? Yeah, I think you guys understand. And so we kind of landed the plane peaceably And I walked out of the room, and the Holy Spirit said to me, Daniel, you fool. You want to give her all this information. Have you agonized in prayer for your wife? And coming into my mind was the image of Rich Hudson, who was an elder of mine in a church, who told me the story of years his wife struggled with depression and loneliness and and feelings of rejection and withdrawal. And they had tried everything. And Rich said, so I began in the middle of the night getting out of bed and kneeling by the bed and agonizing for my wife. And early in the mornings, I would go to my prayer room and I would weep tears for my wife. And he told the story of the miracle that God did in his life. And brothers, if you love your wives, if you love your kids, something is going to happen in our hearts where we begin to agonize and struggle and do battle on our knees on behalf of those we love. Amen? I define love as an act of self-sacrifice flowing from the heart, produced by the Holy Spirit for the good of others and the glory of God. An act of self-sacrifice flowing from the heart, produced by the Holy Spirit for the good of others and the glory of God. We agonize in prayer for those we love. And it was natural for Epaphras, having given, in a sense, birth to this church, looking at this family of spiritual children, how could he not struggle in prayer on their behalf that they would be mature and stand strong in the will of God? I think a second thing that motivates us is the seriousness of the spiritual battle. And you don't have to have special insight to see that, right? I mean, the culture's going down the toilet as fast as we can imagine. Destruction of families, violence, global unrest, ISIS. I mean, again, we are in a battle that compels us to fight on our knees. And at the core of all that is the decline of the church. I always say, uh, you know, the problem is not the pervasiveness of the darkness, it's the failure of the light, right? Light always dispels darkness. And we see that the spiritual battle is real in the context of, of the church itself where there's such decline. A, a friend of mine named John Dickerson, he wrote a book called The Great Evangelical Recession. Uh, he'll be speaking, Robbie, at the conference you'll be at uh, next September in Denver and in his book, he talks about the fact that based upon four different studies and verifiable research, in, in the U.S. anyway, the actual number of real, true, born-again, fruit-bearing believers is somewhere between 7 and 9%. Here in Canada, maybe less, maybe more, I don't know, but we think it's about 40%, not so. He goes on to talk about it in other studies that that uh, tell us that the percentage of Americans who qualify as post-Christian is rising. The largest religious group right now are the nuns. They not n u n s by the way n o n e s. They have no religion. Something's happened in our culture right under our nose that is frightening largest denomination in the United States and really around the world evangelically is the Southern Baptists. and last year they lost more than 200,000 members. It's the biggest one-year decline since 1881. They also noted that their converts as measured by baptisms have fallen eight of the last ten years with last year being the lowest since 1947. Some of you would know the name David Platt, who just took over their missions arm, and he announced that they were going to lay off 600 missionaries to balance its budget, a $21 million deficit. Friends, we need to wake up to the reality that we are losing the battle, and it will compel us and stir our hearts to cry out to God with all that we have for a revival, a renewal, a reawakening of God's people for the sake of our culture. And then, of course, what should motivate us in that regard as we look at at the battle we're in is the tragedy of lost people. I think what Paul said in Romans chapter 9, he said, I wish myself accursed because I have such agony in my heart for my own kinsmen, the Jews, their lost condition compelled him to agonize in prayer. So we look around at the spiritual battle. We think about the love that is in our hearts for the people under our care. And how could we not agonize in prayer? A couple more insights from another passage. And uh, if you want to hold your place here in Colossians, you can turn over or it'll be on the screen. Paul talks about the reality of agonizing in prayer in Romans chapter 15. He's getting ready to, to, to take a love offering he had collected among the Gentiles and take it to Jerusalem where he knew his life was at stake, where he knew this was going to be a controversial delivery to take Gentile money to Jewish believers. And he's praying and he's asking them, pray with me. In fact, let's read this together. Would you read aloud? You see it on the screen. Here we go. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf strive together with me. Greek word there, soon agonizomai. Getting my $60,000 uh, out of that as well, right? Soon agonizomai. In other words, soon as a preposition means together with. Agonizomai sounds like what? Agonize. Agonize. He's saying I'm agonizing in prayer. Now, will you agonize with me? Will you agonize with me? say, well, Paul, why should we do that? Well, he says, I appeal to you for one thing. I'm asking you to. But embedded in this text are two other things that would trigger us to agonize in prayer that I absolutely love. And the next one, besides our love for the people under our care, the reality of the spiritual battle is a high regard for Christ. Because notice what Paul says in Romans 15. I urge you, brethren, by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we know that prayer is impossible apart from the work of Christ, right? Because of his shed blood on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn in two. We now have access to the Holy of Holies, and he is now making intercession for us, and so we cannot pray apart from the work of Christ. But there's something deeper here. The Amplified Version literally says, out of regard for Christ, and that nails it. Paul is saying, the reason I want you to agonize in prayer for me is not just because you love me not just because they're in a spiritual battle. I want you to agonize in prayer because you regard Christ. And brothers, what's at stake in all of this is not the comfort of a casual kind of Christian lifestyle. What's at stake in all this is the name and renown of Jesus Christ the Lord who we praise. And when his name is being demeaned and disregarded and ignored in this culture, it ought to move our hearts to say, oh, Jesus, for your sake, I want to agonize in prayer for your name, your fame, and your glory and Paul is saying I want you to agonize because you regard Christ but he says another thing in this text that would motivate us to to battle in prayer his next line is for or out of regard for Christ but also for or by the love of the spirit what he's really referring to here is a genuine love for the Holy Spirit so so when you see the phrase in English, by the love of the Spirit, you're thinking, well, that's the Spirit, that, I mean, that's the love the Spirit has for me. That's true. Uh, that's the love the Spirit stirs in me for people. That's true too. Through the Spirit is what? Love, right? Uh, but MacArthur and, and others have made this point. It's the only time this appears in the New Testament. It's literally by your love for the Holy Spirit. So brothers, let me ask you, how many of you love the Holy Spirit this morning? Would you raise your hand and say amen? Amen. amen. Now, I grew up in a tradition, we didn't, we didn't sing about that. We sang, oh, how I love Jesus, you know? We wouldn't dare sing, oh, how I love the Holy Spirit, you know, that was kind of weird, you know? We might wind up rolling the aisle and foaming at the mouth or something, right? Like those people down the street. By the way, that's rabies if you ever see that, that's not the Holy Spirit, okay? But uh, uh, it never occurred to us, oh, how I love the Holy Spirit, but don't you, don't you love the Holy Spirit? Don't you love what the Holy Spirit does in our lives? Comforts, teaches, guides, empowers, opens our mouths to speak the word of God, unites us together. And Paul says, I want you to pray because you regard Christ. I want you to agonize with me. Soon agonizom I because of Christ. Soon agonizom because of your love for the Holy Spirit, your love for what only he can do. And I know and you know that only the Holy Spirit can change hearts. Only the Holy Spirit can bring direction. Only the Holy Spirit can heal broken lives. And so we must agonize in prayer because of our love and our anticipation of seeing his work in the lives of other people. Your love for the Holy Spirit. And then one final thought about what motivates us to pray, to agonize in prayer. And this is a heavy one. Is the weight of God's just wrath against sin. And if you say that's kind of a theological sentence, can you make it simple? Yeah. God's hatred for sin. God's hatred for sin. And at this point, we turn our eyes upon Jesus. Here's what the Bible says about our Christ, that in Isaiah 53, he said he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. You ever wonder, what's that mean? Where do we find that? Good question again. Before he went to the cross, you remember our Savior knelt in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he began to pour out his heart, let this cup pass from me. And if you understand the the background of that idea, it is the cup of the wrath of God. And he is recognizing that he is about to take upon himself God's wrath against sin, your sin and my sin, upon himself as our substitution on the cross. And here's what it says in Luke chapter 22 and verse 4, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. It was the recognition of the Father's hatred of sin, the necessity that His wrath be poured out against sin. And it was recognizing that as He went to the cross, He took all of that upon Himself, and He was agonizing in prayer, sweating, as it were, great drops of blood on our behalf. And He became, using another theological word, get my 60,000 again out of the sermon, He became our propitiation. He became the satisfaction of God's just wrath against my sin. And just as Christ agonized in prayer, recognizing the seriousness of sin. Brothers, when is the last time that the sinfulness of this world, the effect of sin on my life, caused me to agonize in prayer? Epaphras a slave of Jesus Christ who agonizes in prayer on your behalf because he loves you, because he understands we're in a battle, because he regards Christ, because he loves the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, and he understands God's hatred of sin. Pray hard, brothers, pray hard. A Couple of illustrations, I remember the day when our oldest son, Justin, after a long journey of being far from God, doing things he knew he shouldn't be doing, caught up with the wrong crowd at school, actually becoming addicted to prescription drugs, and we didn't know what to help him. We had wept and cried and prayed, and I remember the day in Los Angeles, we, we tricked him. <laughs> we pulled up to a building. He didn't know where it was. Two brawny men came out. I turned around in our little minivan, and I said, Justin, this is your new home. And two men came out and took him away we didn't see him for three months a place called the dream center and i'll never forget that night as we went back to our hotel room and we wept and we cried and we pled for the soul of our son and we continued to do that and we agonized in prayer and some of you know what that is like epaphras knew what that was like paul knew that was like, that was like our savior experienced, modeled that for us, and we did war on our behalf. Thank God today, although he didn't finish high school, he got a master's degree, he's been in full-time ministry, a father of three kids, and part of the joy is what God did in his life, but another part of the joy is what he did in our lives when we learn to agonize in prayer. Epaphras, who agonizes in prayer on your behalf. And I think of the early church and how they so passionately prayed. In Acts chapter 4, when persecution came, you remember what it says? They all raised their voices in one accord. They weren't holding back. They cried out to God. And I know that may not be our Western society, but if you had been in other parts of the world, man, they don't care what anybody thinks. They cry out. They raise their voices all at once with united fashion, pleading to God. And I would suggest to you guys, if you were at a hockey game, I love that old adage. I went to a fight, and a hockey game broke out. Right? That's a, that's an old one, but uh, I got to get these names right. Connor McDavid, you guys know him. I, he and I aren't buddies, but I, you know he's famous. And Sidney Crosby. All right. So I, I know it's not quite in vogue as it used to be. A bit of a fight broke out. I mean, a bat. Here's a battle. Uh, I've I've seen this. I mean, I've seen Americans. You know, they're all sophisticated wearing their suits, and all of a sudden, yeah, get him, kill him, beat him, yeah. You know, if a fight was going on, you would be all in, man. You wouldn't care about anything. I want to tell you guys, a fight is happening, a war is occurring, people are under spiritual attack, and we just cannot sit back passively and act like it's all going to work out. God has invited us into the reality of a spiritual victory as we are being changed during prayer, as we are agonizing in prayer, as we are getting over ourselves and into the spiritual realities of what God wants to accomplish in this world through men who pray. And may it be for us. Now, I'm going to invite a a better voice than mine now in a moment to speak to us. It's actually a voice of someone who's already gone to heaven. His name is David Wilkerson. David Wilkerson uh, started the uh, Times Square Church, um, wonderful ministry of outreach to drug addicts. Maybe you know the story of crossing the switchblade and Nikki Cruz and all that God has done through him. And toward the end of his life, he preached a message about agonizing, about anguish. And we're going to watch an excerpt from that, brothers. And I'm just going to ask you as you watch, Lord, stir me to be an Epaphras, to agonize in prayer. Let's watch this together.
1: And I look at the whole religious scene today and all I see are the inventions and ministries of man and flesh. It's mostly powerless. It has no impact on the world. And I see more of the world coming into the church and impacting the church, rather than the church impacting the world. I see the music taking over the house of God. I see entertainment taking over the house of God. An obsession with entertainment in God's house a hatred of correction and a hatred of reproof. Nobody wants to hear it anymore Whatever happened to anguish in the house of God Whatever happened to anguish in the ministry. It's a word you don't Hear in this pampered age You don't hear it Anguish means extreme pain and distress The emotion so stirred Then it becomes painful, acute, deeply felt inner pain because of conditions about you, in you or around you. Anguish, deep pain, deep sorrow, agony of God's heart. We've held on to our religious rhetoric and our revival talk, but we've become so passive All true passion is born out of anguish. All true passion for Christ comes out of a baptism of anguish. You search the scripture and you'll find that when God determined to recover a ruined situation, He would share His own anguish for what God saw happening to His church and to His people and he would find a praying man and he would take that man and literally baptize him in anguish. You find it in the book of Nehemiah. Jerusalem is in ruins. How is God going to deal with this? How is God going to restore the ruin? The folks look at me Nehemiah was not a preacher, he was a career man. but this was a praying man. If God found a man, who would not just have a flash of emotion, not just some great sudden burst of concern, and then let it die. He said, no, I broke down, and I wept, and I mourned, and I fasted, and then I began to pray night and day. Why didn't these other men, why didn't they have an answer? Why didn't God use them in restoration? Why didn't they have a word? because there was no sign of anguish, no weeping, not a word of prayer. It's all ruined. Does it matter to you today? Does it matter to you at all that God's spiritual Jerusalem, the church, is now married to the world? That There's such a coldness sweeping the land closer than that. Does it matter about the Jerusalem that's in our own hearts? The sign of ruin that's slowly draining spiritual power and passion? Blind to lukewarmness? Blind to the mixture that's creeping in? That's all the devil wants to do is get the fight out of you and kill it! So you won't labor in prayer anymore! You won't weep before God anymore! You can sit and watch television and your family go to hell! Let me ask you, is, is what I just said convicted you at all? There's a great difference between anguish and concern. Concern is something that you the biggest interest you. In. You take an interest in a project or a cause or a concern or a need. I'm going to tell you something I've learned over all my years, 50 years of preaching. If it is not born in anguish, if it had not been born by the Holy Spirit where when you saw and heard of the ruin that drove you to your knees took you down into a baptism of anguish where you began to pray and seek God I know now oh my God do I know it until I'm in agony until I have been anguished over it and all our projects all our ministries, everything we do. Where are the Sunday school teachers that weep over kids they know are not hearing and they're going to hell. You see, a true prayer life begins at the place of anguish. You see, if you, you set your heart to pray, God's going to come and start sharing your heart, His heart with you. Your heart begins to cry out, Oh God, your name is being blasphemed. Holy Spirit's being mocked, the enemy is out trying to destroy the testimony of the Lord's faithfulness and something has to be done. There's gonna be no renewal, no revival, no awakening until we're willing to let him once again break us. Folks, it's getting late and it's getting serious. Please don't tell me, don't tell me you're concerned. When you're spending hours in front of internet or television, come on. Lord, there's so need to get this altar and confess, I am not what I was, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. God, I don't have your heart or your burden, I've been, I wanted it easy, didn't want to be happy. But Lord, true joy comes, true joy comes out of anguish. There's nothing of the flesh will give you joy. I don't care how much money, I don't care what kind of new house, there is absolutely nothing physical could give you joy. It's only what is accomplished by the Holy Spirit when you obey Him and take on His heart. Build the walls around your family, build the walls around your own heart, make you strong and impregnable against the enemy. God, that's what we desire.
0: We're going to keep the lights low if we can, and in this moment, I think of a story that my friend Al Toledo, who pastors the Chicago Tabernacle, tells of one night being in a prayer meeting there in Brooklyn Tabernacle when the burden came to pray for Pastor Simula's daughter, Chrissy. And for minute after minute after minute, he said that room became a labor room as people cried out to God and wept and prayed and did battle in the anguish of their heart. And the story's told that just a few days later, Chrissy came home. What does God want to do? As you think about these people who are under spiritual attack today, people in your life, can we anguish, brothers? (laughs) Not concern, not a flash of emotion, but God, would you share your heart with us now? Would you share your heart with us? And so, men, I want you to take a posture that allow you to anguish in prayer. You can stand with arms uplifted. You can kneel at your seat. You can, can just sit. You can come and kneel across this altar. You can lay on your face. God, deliver us from self-consciousness and give us a Christ consciousness in this moment, Lord. And brothers, I'm going to ask, let's make this a labor room. And I'm going to ask you to do something that's going to be out of your comfort zone, perhaps, but it doesn't matter. I want us to all raise our voices in anguish today. And I want you to pray aloud. And I want you to pray like we're in war. If you had a child that's about to walk over the cliff, you wouldn't whisper. You'd say, "Stop! Don't go there." And today, there are souls going into a crisis, eternity. There are marriages here that are on the brink of disaster. There are children and grandchildren who the enemy is destroying. There's a society around us that bears the marks of incredible warfare and battle and fallout. And men, we must, by the Spirit's grace, raise our voices and anguish before God. So I'm going to ask you, Don't give a rip about what anybody else is doing around you. I'm just going to ask you, Holy Spirit, share your heart with me. And now for these next few minutes, I cry out to you in anguish that these people would stand mature and strong in the will of God, that you would save the lost, that you would heal my home, that you would rescue that marriage, that you would care for that young person. And so right now, I'm turning my mic off. And I want you men... To join me, but better yet, to join what we know to be the will of God and the word of God, and that, that is that we would anguish and struggle in prayer. So God, let this room be filled with the voices of men crying out to you, God. And Lord, thank you for the joy that's coming, the joy that's coming in deliverance and miracles and answers to prayer and healing and salvation. So now, God, share your heart with us. As we pour out our hearts to you, there's a chorus that says, Lord, I need you. But we're going to say, Lord, they need you. We're just going to pray for these. We're going to sing over them and lift our voices as we cry out to God. Lord, they need you. Oh, they need you. Every hour. One defense, their one defense, their righteousness, oh God, how they need you, sing it again, they need you. O oh God, Oh God. So Lord, we celebrate the victory that comes through agonizing prayer. We trust you for joy. We trust you for the mighty hand of the God that we serve, to whom we pray. Lord, help us not waste our freedom. Teach us to pray hard. For Christ's sake we pray.